This is Mo Lotman, and you're listening to the Techno Skeptic Podcast. My guest today is Kentaro Toyama. He's an associate professor of community information at the University of Michigan and a fellow of the Dalai Lama Center for Ethics and Transformative Values at MIT. He is also co-editor-in-chief of the journal Information Technologies and International Development and has written about technology from a philosophical perspective for The Atlantic. In 2005, he co-founded Microsoft Research India, where he spent several years trying to use technological interventions to aid development an experience that left him disillusioned enough to write the book Geek Heresy, Rescuing Social Change from the Cult of Technology. We're speaking in his office at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, which also happens to be where I graduated from college. Kentaro, welcome. Thank you, Mo. So great to have you here. Um, And when I look through your bio, the thing that stands out to me maybe the most is how international you are. You were born in Japan, if if I'm getting this right, Mm -hmm. raised partly in the U.S. You've done research in England taught math in Ghana, and spent years in India, and then even within the USA. You've lived on the East Coast, West Coast, Midwest. What kind of insights do you think that gives you in particular? Uh, That's a great question. I think uh, one of the things that I've certainly gained from all my moving, and it wasn't really so much up to me as just random chance events, um, is that, uh, you know, because I moved around so much when I was even a child, one thing I understood very quickly was that you know, the world was made up of very different cultures. And what was interesting to me was that within a culture, people really acted as if that was the only culture that existed. But as soon as you went to another one, you realized, okay, here's another place with a completely different set of uh, rules and norms. Um, and that certainly helped me both in my research as well as in understanding some of the phenomena that uh, I write about in the book, which are, you know, which are around technology and society. Is there a cultural difference then in how we think about technology in general across these various cultures? Oh, yeah, I think undoubtedly. Um, you know, there's a cultural difference just in how we use technologies. Uh, I sometimes talk about how the Internet is different in, you know, in North Korea and China and Russia and the United States. I mean, every culture and subculture basically really has a different Internet because, people use the internet in a way that matches their culture, not so much that the internet brings about a uniform culture everywhere it goes. That's awesome. So talk to us a little bit about um, Microsoft Research India, because I think that's what led you to write this incredible book. And I think rather than me try to sum it up, maybe you can get our listeners up to speed on what happened while you were there. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, I really was a geek in the sense that I was a computer science researcher. Um, I did work in uh, computer vision, which is a kind of uh, subset of artificial intelligence that's primarily concerned with imagery. And um, after seven years of doing that at Microsoft Research, I felt like, you know, I liked, I loved the work, I loved research, but I really wanted to see if there were ways to um, you know, support uh, and contribute to society in a bigger way other than through, you know, for example, creating more gadgets for video game players. Uh, and so when I had the opportunity, um, I moved to India with my boss, who was South Indian, to uh, help start a new research lab in India. And with that move, I also decided to uh, start a different line of research. Uh, basically, what I wanted to do was see if there were ways to use digital technologies to uh, alleviate poverty, uh, especially since we were in India. Um, 
And so over the next uh, little over five years, uh, I oversaw or ran studies in which we used everything from PCs to mobile phones to the Internet to digital cameras, you know, even custom hardware that we build ourselves to address issues in uh, agriculture, education, governance, healthcare, uh, and so on. And, um, you know, what the conclusion I ultimately came to was that while technology can help in some cases, it's really just not the thing that is needed to help alleviate poverty. And what is the thing that's needed? If you, uh, if you that's, know. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure that I, I certainly know, but I, you know, my attention now focuses much more on kind of you know, real human development in the sense of human beings growing and maturing and becoming better versions of themselves. Um, I'll give you an example of you know, one of the things that I saw in India. So uh, one of the projects that we did was to see if we could find ways to help uh, children learn better in government schools in that country. Um, surprisingly, quite a few of these schools, uh, which are you know, basically public schools, often in very rural areas, uh, often not particularly well-funded, but nevertheless, they sometimes have um, computer labs uh, because you know the country just believes that so much of its current growth is happening through information technology, so uh, we'd walk into these you know ch- uh, computer labs, and what we'd inevitably find were that maybe there were four or five computers, um, and you know classrooms full of children would rotate through these uh, labs. Uh, oftentimes, you'd see as many as nine or ten kids surrounding a single computer. And every time this happened, what you would find is one child, usually the dominant one, would take over the mouse and keyboard and right. monopolize the whole interaction. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, we were like, well, you know, this seems like an easy pro- problem to fix with technology. Let's just give every child a mouse, allow them to plug in as many mice as you can into a single PC, and then adjust the software uh, so that you could have all the kids learning about something. So we wrote the software, which would basically uh, have a single differently colored cursor on the screen for each mouse. And kids very quickly realized that the, you know, the, mouse that, you know, the cursor they were moving was the one that their mouse controlled. Um, and we found in, uh, in trials that children with this setup, five to a PC, could learn just as much as one child with a PC all to themselves. Okay. And so this sounded like, hey, this is great. You know, effectively, what we've done was to you know, reduce the cost of whatever value the kids were getting out of the PC because now, you know, effectively, the PC cost one-fifth as much as it did before. Right. Um, so we tried to uh, scale it up by, you know, taking it to schools that, you know, we thought were having challenges with, uh, you know, not just their computer labs, but also their overall educational programs. But we immediately found that, you know, like we just couldn't do very basic things like even get reliable electricity or, you know, find teachers who knew something about the computers to the point that they could even boot them up and run educational software on them. Right. Uh, Things like this. And, you know, as we looked deeper and deeper, what we found was it was just, you know, the larger issue in many of these schools was that the administrations were not really focused on education. The teachers were often very well-meaning, but often undertrained and generally a slave to the curriculum, to the state curriculum, which was so... Uh, rigid? Rigid. Yeah, exactly. It was so rigid that, you know, they didn't feel like they had any room to do anything else. Um, they just felt like they were under this constant time pressure to go over material. And so we found that even with good technology and even with a setup in which, you know, children could be taking advantage of the technology, that these other institutional things just overwhelmed any chance of the technology having a chance. And so, um, you know, we looked back at our original setup, you know, why was it that in research studies this did so well? And it was basically because we as researchers had intentionally picked a school that was already being run well. And as researchers, we also made sure that all of the social conditions were set up right. Right. 
And so on top of that foundation, the technology could do something positive. But in exactly the situations where we wanted the technology to help, you know, exactly in those schools that weren't doing so well, the underlying foundation was absent or in some cases outright corrupt. And so um, the technology just did not bring anything positive. And this sort of led to, I think, what you described as technology being more of a jack. You say it widens disparities rather than helps equalize things? Right, that's right. That's exactly right. Uh, so in the book, I talk about uh, technology having a law of, law of amplification. And what that basically means is that the technology amplifies whatever human forces are already in place. Um, so if you have a good school with good teachers and good administrators, you know, technology will often get used in a way that enhances teaching, that makes learning, uh, that improves learning. But in exactly those schools where, you know, something is dysfunctional or the teachers aren't trained enough or there's not enough budget to support computers, um, you find that the technology, you know, often does nothing, but in some cases worsens the situation because basically, you know, funds that could have been used for some other program are, are, are uh, diverted to technology. Are you worried? Uh, you've been a teacher yourself of, of young children, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I've taught everything from, you know, third grade all the way up to now PhD students. Wow. So do you are you concerned at all about how the technology is used even in developed countries? Uh, That's a great question. And the answer is yes. Um, I think that too often, uh, even in the United States, we rush to technology as a solution to some underlying problem that is effectively human and institutional in nature. Um, sometimes I ask, you know, audiences that I give talks to the following question. I say, imagine you're the CEO of a for-profit company that has a good product, but whose sales people are not meeting their targets, right? And you're actually losing money. Um, you know, which of the following four things do you think would help the most? A, replace the CEO with somebody else. Uh, B, uh, give all the sales uh, staff better training. Uh, C, um, change the culture of the organization by having, you know, uh, morale events, or D, buying iPads for all the employees. <laughs> and uh, you're laughing, and usually that's the response I get from audiences as well, is they just think D is so obviously ridiculous that, you know, it just generates laughter. But I would say that's exactly the logic that we are now using in many of our schools, where we say, look, these schools are, you know, failing some part of our students. We want to help them do better. And so the answer is technology. Right. And, I, and this, for the same reason that iPads for all the employees aren't going to help a company turn you know, its profits around, uh, exactly those same reasons are in play in any school, which is that if the fundamental issues are you know, you know, weird politics in the, in the school system or teachers who aren't being paid enough or you know, students who have other problems at home and whose needs are not being met otherwise, if those problems all exist, it just doesn't matter what technology you bring to the school. And in fact, recently there's been some uh, research that suggests that technology in the school actually hurts the least uh, achieving students because they're the ones that are most distracted by it for non-educational reasons. Right. And distraction is a pretty big problem, it sounds like. It sounds like you had problems with that in, in India as well. Yeah, I think distractions in the educational context, you know, technology is a distraction. Um, you know, an analogy I give for that is, you know, our digital technologies these days are so powerful that they can do so many different things. It's kind of like offering a child a whole, you know, buffet smorgasbord where they get to pick whatever they want to eat. Um, now, you know, most of us as parents would provide some adult guidance in that situation and not let the child just gravitate toward the dessert and stuff themselves with as much sweet, you know, food as they can. Right. But that's effectively what we're doing when we say, here, have an, have an iPad. We believe it's educational. Go and, you know, go off on your own and learn. Um, it's not that children aren't naturally 
curious in the same way that children are, of course, naturally hungry. And, <laughs> right. you know, to some extent, we have, you know, physiology that wants to eat nutritious foods. But if you give the child complete option and control over what they're doing with something as powerful as a, as a, as a digital uh, device, then inevitably they end up doing the things that are not particularly educational and which instead, you know, just um, stimulate certain parts of their brain that are giving them immediate gratification without learning. Like angry birds. Like angry birds, yeah. It's cognitive candy. Cognitive candy. I like that. The program continues right after this. Thanks for listening to the Technoskeptic podcast. If you like what you hear, please share or subscribe at technoskeptic.substack.com. We've got a lot of great content looking at the impact of technology on society. We cover a wide range of issues like privacy, economics, cognition, synthetic biology, artificial intelligence, and a whole lot more. If you have comments or want to contribute an article to the Technoskeptic, email us at technoskeptic at substack.com. And now back to the show. So has all this experience changed your own personal use of technology at all? Um, I, you know, it's not so much that it's changed, but it's kind of uh, made me more conscious. Uh, I know, Mo, that you don't have a mobile phone, That's as I true. discovered when we tried to set up our meeting point. Uh, I, I do have a mobile phone because I think, you know, being able to call anybody at any point is definitely useful. But uh, I'm taking this out of my pocket right now. But as you can see, it's not a smartphone. This is the same phone I've owned for 12 years. It's the only mobile phone I've had in the United States. Um, and it's because I actually do not want to be distracted by all the bells and whistles that smartphones have. Um, you know, I watch other people, you know, including members of my family with smartphones. And it just seems like whole chunks of their day are spent in this, you know, rabbit hole. Um, and not necessarily for a means that I think is particularly productive or even good for relationships. Right. Yeah, I could not agree more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, are you concerned at this point that parents and educators just aren't getting it? Or are people starting to come around and understand this issue? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think there are certainly some educators that don't get it. I think parents are increasingly coming around, although I would say that like a lot of things, it's again the wealthier, better educated parents that are getting the message. So increasingly, there are studies that show that technology just has no, either no impact or negative impact on learning. And that message is being permeated into the upper echelons of our society. Right. And so, you know, we have this interesting phenomenon now where, you know, tech executives in Silicon Valley pay good money to send their kids to Waldorf schools that don't allow any electronic technology until the eighth grade, for right. example. Um, I'm actually, I'm, I call this now the reverse digital divide. Right. Right, where uh, <laughs> relatively poor and some, you know, somewhat less educated parents are the ones who are who want their kids to have a lot of interaction with technology because they've been sold it so, you know, so uh, enthusiastically yeah. that they think it's going to help their child. Uh, whereas the parents who have, you know, read the, you know, between, you know, the, all the news articles that are saying that the technology is not doing as much, they're the ones that are a little bit more careful about what they present to their children. Uh, many of them, again, are, work for tech companies. So, you know, there's a, it's easy to see a little bit of a hypocrisy there. Um, but, um, yeah, I this do think This irony is just, it's, it's like all the, all the, 
it's going to be eventually be all the poor children with the technology I think and all so. the rich children. Yes, it is. I mean, it's amazing to me. You know, we, you know, we're about an hour away from Detroit, right? You yeah. go to Detroit and, you know, this is a city which uh, on the one hand is, you know, doing better and better. And, um, you know, the citizens are all, you know, hardworking people who really want to see their city turn around. Um, but many of them are unemployed, you know, for reasons that have to do with a larger economy. And they all have smartphones and they're all on Facebook. Yeah. And, you know, the amount of technology they have is staggering. Uh, but in and of itself, none of that is, you know, is helping the city. It reminds me of the Sneetches, the Dr. Seuss uh, story where the <laughs> Sylvester McMonkey McBean comes with this star making <laughs> machine and puts the stars on the bellies of the Sneetches that don't have it. And then the other Sneetches decide they don't actually want the stars anymore. And then he takes the stars off the other Sneetches. All right, a little digression there. Uh, so I actually wanted to ask you about um, the Dalai Lama Center for Ethics and Transformative Values, because I know this is part of your resume, but I don't know much about it. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that. Uh, absolutely. Um, so the center is run by a man, uh, the Venerable Tenzin Priyadarshi. He is a Tibetan monk. Uh, actually, he's Indian by birth. Um, and he went to MIT primarily to see how as far as I understand, uh, you know, how to engage the university community, not just MIT, but across the United States, with trying to put all of this brain power to use towards a more, to something that has more societal value. So, you know, not just, let's not start just a bunch of tech companies for the sake of it, but can we take all of the ingenuity and even the technology that we have and apply it towards increasing compassion in the world, uh, increasing peace in the world? Um, and so, you know, it's a center with a lot of eclectic um, Programs. Uh, I was asked to be a fellow by uh, by Tenzin, and um, you know, I I think it's largely because he thought that uh, some of the work that I was doing in India was interesting. Um, there are I don't know how many fellows at this point. Quite a few fellows. Uh, there's actually another woman here who's at the art school who's also a fellow, and all of us have in common that we're trying to find some way to use the the research and the scholarship that we have and apply it towards uh, more positive social ends. Is that something you think is particularly lacking right now in general in society, or has it always been thus? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not you know, really sure. Um, I do think that in some ways there are parts of our society today that are more focused than ever on, you know, that are really thinking about something beyond their families and themselves. Um, on the other hand, it's not clear to me that it's, you know, it's a majority of the population. Right. Um, it's kind of hard to tell. And the statistics I've seen are mixed in terms of what they say. For example, you know, volunteering among uh, freshmen on university campuses is higher than it's been, you know, as of the last 40 years or something like that. That's great. Uh, on the other hand, things like, you know, charitable donations to nonprofit organizations has basically stayed at a steady approximately 2% for the last 40 years. So, you know, who knows? I mean, just from those two statistics, maybe volunteerism is up, but not necessarily charitable giving. Uh, it's hard to say. Right, right, right. Um, you know, I see among the students today, you know, it seems like many more of them are involved in attempts to cause some kind of positive social change than I certainly was and, you know, any of my peers when I was uh, in college. But it's not clear, you know, what part of it is really a larger trend and, you know, how much of it is just unique to the circumstances I happen to be seeing. Mm. One thing that's interesting is the distinction, I think, between, and maybe this is something that I think Buddhism might shed light on, is just distinguishing between happiness or fulfillment and wealth. This is something people seemed 
to often confuse. And so I think it's when you're looking especially at technology, technology is tends to be an expression of wealth, but happiness doesn't necessarily correlate with either. Right. I don't know. I don't know if you had any thoughts. Yeah, that's on a that. great question. I mean, I definitely think that um, as a society, we do tend to focus on the measurable things more than the harder to measure things. Uh, and so, you know, wealth is easy to measure, right? right and right, it's right. the same for everybody. You know, a dollar bill is a dollar bill wherever it goes. Uh, what's harder to measure is somebody's level of happiness. But I think even happiness is not doesn't go far enough in what we should really be paying attention to. Right. In that, you know, what you really want is to maximize the likelihood of future happiness mm-hmm. and optimize for that. But that means that you have to do things today that might not necessarily make you especially happy. Right. And so, for example, one obvious, you know, example of that is whatever we're going we're gonna to need to do with respect to climate change. Right. Um, you know, it's such a large problem that it seems clear that we're going to have to make some kind of sacrifices in the short term in order so that we can ensure an enduring, you know, uh, life for human civilization overall. But, you know, that's because we believe that that future happiness is worth more than, you know, maximizing today's happiness for all the people who are alive today. Right. Well, you talk about gross national wisdom, I think, in the book. Is that kind of what you're getting at there? Right, yeah. So in my book, you know, I do, you know, there's a, the, in chapter five, I talk about happiness and why happiness, focus on happiness in and of itself doesn't solve the larger challenges our society is facing. Um, I do think, a, you know, focus on happiness is better than a focus on wealth because right. it's at least closer to the kind of end goal of what wealth is supposed to bring us. But uh, in the end, you have to focus on something other than the end goal. You have to, you want to focus on the, process and the the traits that allow you to achieve the end goal right which and is that is that the heart mind and will is that the, the heart mind and will right you know in philosophy they talk about virtue ethics as opposed to you know other forms of ethics that kind of focus on what the right decision is rather than rather than the virtue that a person has or a society has to make the right decision in for, you know even if you know what it is um, and so yeah i think that's really what is heart mind and will i think of as like the basic building blocks of what makes a person a good person. I think you, you write so well about that in your book, and I wonder if you would just share just a little bit more detail on that. Absolutely. So, you know, when I came to this conclusion that technology amplifies underlying human forces, um, it leads to this uh, conclusion that you need to, f- that we, you know, as a society need to focus on the human forces, first of all. And then what happens is that like all the technologies we have automatically would then align in a positive direction if the underlying human forces are positive. So then the question becomes, what are, what are the human forces? And you know, I kept trying to break this down. I mean, I'm a physicist and a computer scientist by training, and so my tendency is to be, you know, arguably a little bit more reductionist than other social scientists. And what I felt was that you could reduce everything about what makes a person good into three different factors. Uh, and if you take those three different factors and grow them all, you can pretty much guarantee, you know, quote unquote, a good person. Whereas if you're missing any one of the three, then it doesn't necessarily lead to good outcomes. So heart, mind, and will is meant to capture those three factors. Uh, heart is basically just good intention, right? Are you intending to, you know, minimize pain for others in, uh, into the future and maximize joy and happiness? Uh, Mind is basically, you know, judgment or discernment, or, you know, you can think of it as the cognitive side of things. Like, are you capable of coming to the right kind of decision? Uh, And will is really just the willpower and the self-control to put those other two things into practice. Uh, So, you know, how does this work out? Well, 
you know, you can imagine, uh, one way to think about this is, imagine, you know, you're thinking about good health as an outcome, right? If you have both the intention to be healthier and the, and the discernment to know that you need to exercise and uh, eat uh, nutritious foods, that's great. But if you don't have the self-control, it, it's not enough, right? right? Uh, on the other hand, you might have the judgment. You might know exactly what you're supposed to do, and you might have the self-control, but you might not really care about your health or other people's health. And so even though you have the knowledge and the willpower, it won't be applied to the right thing. Right. And then the last possibility is that you're missing uh, the intent, uh, sorry, you're missing the judgment, right? Which is you have good, in- you know, this is where the saying, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions come from. Right. Which is you might have the intention to do the right thing uh, and the willpower, but maybe you just haven't heard yet that it's due to exercise and good nutrition. And so you might end up eating a lot of junk food thinking that it's going to help you get there. Right. Um, is and that so, kind of where we are with, with technology? Where we are We're with eating the, the junk food of, <laughs> of tech? I think there's a lot where, you know, I think with technology, I think we're missing all three, you know, to some extent. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, many of us know better, but just cannot put our devices away for, to save our lives. Uh, uh, many of us, you know, are not really focused on what's best for human civilization. You know, we are just focused on, you know, quarterly profits or, you know, improving shareholder value, however you want to put that. And so even though we might be smart and we might have a lot of willpower and be terrific entrepreneurs, we're not focused on things that help society. And then finally, I think, uh, you know, uh, you know, many of us don't necessarily recognize yet that the technology is causing harm in some ways that we probably wouldn't want if we knew better. Right. That is awesome, and I don't, I don't think I have anything else to ask you, so I really appreciate your time, and thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.